Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Two weeks ago, I spoke with singer-songwriter Tay Phoenix about protesting and civil disobedience in the world of Star Trek. We also talked about the grassroots effort that she's leading to organize Trek fans to support fair and equitable elections, particularly the one on November 3rd of this year. The effort is called Trek the Vote, and you still have a chance to get involved by volunteering to be a poll worker or helping provide assistance to disenfranchised voters. If you want to know more, you can go to trekthe.vote on the web, and of course, vote yourself in the election if you haven't done that yet. You can check your registration status and find your polling place at trekthe.vote2, so be sure to do that. Our examination of the socioeconomic and political parallels between Star Trek and our own world continues this week with a look at data rights. This isn't like the rights of Commander Data, we already did Measure of a Man, but instead, we're looking at your individual rights in relation to your personal data and the things that you create, and how that reality is depicted in Star Trek. Remember when the Doctor wrote a hollow novel and his publisher decided to just distribute it against his wishes? That kind of seems like a violation of his rights. Of course, he's a hologram, so he doesn't have any rights, which is a whole other show, but you'd be pretty mad if that happened to you. The people we see on Star Trek seem to be able to pull up any piece of media they desire, but in our reality, you're juggling 12 different subscriptions to media services like Netflix or Disney+. Starships and even tricorders have sensors powerful enough to let anyone using them know what you had for breakfast two days ago. That seems invasive. Data is a huge part of the world of Star Trek, and it flows completely unimpeded as far as we can see. So how do they keep it safe, and how are people's rights protected? How do we get from Facebook to Trek's future? I don't know, <laughs> but if anyone could, it would be Catherine Trendacosta. Catherine is a lead policy analyst for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She's also a former managing editor for io9 and a contributor to the Gawker family of publications. And I spoke with her a while back about the state of intellectual property, freedom of speech, and information availability in the Federation and in our own world. We're all aware, hopefully, that the data that describes us is a valuable commodity to companies like Facebook and Twitter, but it can be hard to conceptualize the fact that it's valuable and something that could be at risk. But people like Catherine Catherine are working hard to defend user privacy, free expression, and innovation in digital spaces. I had a great time talking with her, and I hope you enjoy the discussion and you take it upon yourself to learn more about the work that the EFF is doing. I want to remind you that this Thursday, today, and every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central, I and my co-host Ella Pearson will be broadcasting live our Star Trek Discovery recap show, Discoverage, where we recap and review the latest episode of Discovery. The premiere of Disco Season 3 is out now, so join us for a fun breakdown of the first episode. And we, of course, just finished recapping the first season of Lower Decks, and you can find that on the show feed as well. I'm going to get out of here, but I'm throwing it to myself and Catherine. Enjoy our talk, register to vote, keep yourself safe online, and with that, let's get underway. It's great to have you aboard. I always ask new guests to the show how they first became Star Trek fans. How did you first discover Star Trek? Oh, I, I have written about this a number of times. I distinctly remember, we would always go to my grandparents' house on the weekends, and I distinctly remember sitting in the guest bedroom with the TV on like UPN and oh, yeah. watching uh, the like reruns of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And like, I was aware of Star Trek before then. Like I remember the reading rainbow episode. Like I have a lot of those kinds of memories, but <laughs> yeah. I remember like distinctly watching those episodes on the weekend and getting just like obsessed with always catching it and like catching up on what I felt was like a whole world that I hadn't that had like I should have been more aware of before that point. Yeah. It's it really is funny how it just really appeals to I, I'm the, I was the same way. It appeals to some people and then other people, you know, could be hardcore sci-fi fans and they're like, eh, not for me." But yeah, it just seems to find the people who appreciate it the most. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what a person would be like who would love Trek and yet hasn't discovered it somehow yet. You know, it just it's such an institution and uh yeah, it's it's really uh really a fit for some people. It's such an institution, but I, I wonder all the time about how how you would discover it now. 
like it's it's both really accessible but also not on tv you're not gonna like yeah that's true stumble upon it and like really what it is is you're not going to stumble upon it and like learn to like it without any preconceived notion That's, at this point. Yeah, I could see that being true. I mean, it's You're going to have be... to like decide to to like look into Star Trek yeah, because yeah. Star Trek. That's the scenario I'm imagining that someone just went someday I'll give that a chance and then they finally just kind of go and seek it out. I suppose it's it's got to be on cable somewhere in in yeah. uh, ongoing syndication, but I'm yeah. Sure. Uh, here in the U.S., I'm pretty sure I think uh, BBC America had the next generation, at least, because mm, mm, mm. I keep like seeing it pop up when yeah. I'm home. But I, it's just, but like, I don't think, I also don't think new people are like stumbling across or using terrestrial television channels the same way anymore. Anyway, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe my parents are. I'll have to check with them. But uh, you wrote an article this year for StarTrek.com entitled, I Have My Name Because of Star Trek, which I would recommend to anybody to read. I'll link it in the show notes. And in it, you talk about discovering Star Trek and the importance of representation in media. Yeah, I wrote about that for StarTrek.com. And then on the 50th anniversary of Star Trek way back when, I wrote about a sort of similar theme for io9. Um, And I always say, like, I don't actually, I don't, think it's coincidental that I got into Star Trek when the two captains were a black man and a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I had been very into science fiction all my entire life, but it was incredibly rare for me to see anything that approached something that looked like me on television. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm mixed race. I'm half Japanese American, half Italian American. And so like, I always joke about this, like the closest I came growing up was like, as long as there was a brunette girl, that was like, that was the closest I ever came to seeing someone like me on television. Right. Um, and especially someone who was uh, in power or important and not like a best friend character. Right. And it was, it was incredibly exciting to me to, to see that. And, um, and the captain of Voyager had my name or a version of my name. Wow. Um, my name is Catherine has many spellings. My name is not the same as Catherine Janeway's, um, which is also not a, uh, not the traditional spelling. Um, but it just meant a lot to me. And when I turned 12, I was, I changed schools. I was moving from elementary school to middle school and the nature of Los Angeles schooling is such that that was going to be an entirely new group of people, say for like five kids. Hmm. Um, and so that gave me a chance to, to sort of change how I was addressed. And I'd been Kate, ironically now, of course, Kate Bulger would have been, it would have been fine. Um, <laughs> I'd been Kate for 12 years, but I like my, a lot of my friends and I at that point were like trying to pick names that we thought for our new schools that we thought would like help us embody something about ourselves. Sure, um, and yeah. so I, I moved to Catherine in seventh grade and I've been Catherine um, for 20 years. And a lot of my friends would say like, I can't even imagine you having a different name or being called something else. Um, and, but it was just like at the, at 12 or 13 and in a new school, there was something about having the same name as like my idol character in Star Trek that like gave me a sense of comfort and a sense of like embodying a little bit more of, of the of that character and uh, embodying a little bit more of Star Trek, whose like vision and values meant so much to me at that time. Yeah, they still do, but like specifically when I was that age. When you're that de developing, yeah. Um, nobody would call me Han, so that didn't work for me. But <laughs> that's that's really great that uh, that that worked out for you. You know, in the article, you also talk about your efforts at the uh, EFF to help create a Star Trek future and not a mirror universe future. Uh, right. Can you give us a brief summary of the mission of the Electronic Frontier Foundation? It's an organization I bet a lot of people are, are aware of, but they probably don't know what it does. Yeah. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation is a, a digital civil liberties nonprofit. Um, it's been around for, we actually turned 30 this month slash last month <laughs> it's like hard to figure out what time is sure. but we turned 30 this year which um is really old when you consider the actual length of time the internet has oh that's been readily ancient available. internet wise yeah 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 um and it is a group of people who are devoted to making sure that your rights 
and your liberties and innovation transfer from the physical world to the to the online world. Mm -hmm. So we do a fair amount of work in things like uh, surveillance technology and trying to prevent the pervasiveness of that or trying to establish some sort of set of rules or principles or standards for technology being used in certain ways. Um, I work on net neutrality, which is a fairly um, famous uh, topic. I work yeah. on net neutrality, intellectual property, free speech online, um, and, and and broadband access, which is a, a huge thing right now. So it's um, we are uh, smaller than you'd think, <laughs> given how much we do, yeah. um, but a very sort of unique organization and one I'm really, really proud to, to work at. Uh, I'd, I'd assume that it's a passion for you uh, as well. It is. And it, it all goes back to Star Trek. And that sounds insane. No, no not at all. Except it's not. And it's not even the technology aspect. It's the fandom aspect, which was when I was a kid, no one else that I was a kid with was into Star Trek or science fiction really that much. Yeah. Um, I went to like a smallish school and, and it just wasn't a cool or interesting thing to be involved in. And I joined a mailing list that was for people under 18 and it was run by like an adult who made sure that like it, like it never went off the rails. Um, and we would chat and they were people from all over the world. And it like, it meant so much to me to be able to talk to people about Star Trek and to, to have really fun, weird conversations in chat rooms. Yeah. Um, and that led me to fan fiction and fan art, all of which, um, especially at that time, I've written a, n a number of things about the history sort of, of fandom online. And like fan fiction, now people know what it is and it's it's not considered dangerous or something that's going to ruin your life. But at the <laughs> time, it really was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of fan fiction or fan video or fan art all swing into... Um, the problems of intellectual property law and uh, mm. copyright law and all of those things. And so that got me interested in copyright law. That's what led to me going to law school, um, thinking that like if I wasn't going to be a writer, uh, I wanted to defend writers online. Sure. Um, and then I was hired as a journalist out of law school and, and didn't uh, and and was doing it in a different way. Right. And now it's I'm at EFF, which is kind of why I went to law school in the first place. OTW, which is the Organization for Transformative Works, hadn't existed when I was a kid. And I didn't know. And I like it is a, a thing that's pretty spectacular and grows out of the same sort of fandom history. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of my work now the thing i became passionate about and the reason i know all of these arcane laws i always say is so other fans don't have to know them yeah. i know them so they don't like yeah <laughs> it, well, we have a pretty robust framework of protection for for rights holders in our country um and it's applied in the past to works of fiction you know original creations trademarks patents and the internet comes along and people are creating videos, podcasts, digital art, things that have no physical existence can be reproduced effortlessly. And it complicates the issues of intellectual property rights. If you can just push a button and replicate something, the protection of content needs to be reexamined and IP rights become digital rights then by default. Like people all have written fan fiction for a long time and people yeah. have made art and sold stuff at conventions, but it was at such a small scale that like the studios weren't really going to police it that hard or couldn't, they didn't, it was underground or whatever. And when it's on the internet, it's much easier. Yeah. Um, and so that's also where that comes into to play. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, what we see in Trek, like the Federation in the world of the 24th century is very egalitarian. Uh, and it's, there's a, you know, social anarchism on display. And that was once the dream of liberal minded writers in the sixties but it's a dream that's under constant attack in our own world. And I, I've joked before on the show that the, the societal altruism on display in Star Trek seems more, more fictional sometimes than the warp drive in comparison with what we see in our own world. And there, there must just be something in the water in the United Federation of Planets that makes everyone so selfless and, and civic-minded. Yeah, I mean, there was that whole uh, 
There was the study just last week that we'd all be better off if they put lithium in our water, right? Oh, I did not read that, but thank yeah, you for sharing they, that with me. <laughs> yeah, they just, Maybe that's they what it is. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of scientists did some studies, and apparently, like the places where there is more lithium in the water have like less depressed people. I just, I just, <laughs> just like ambient lithium. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's crazy. I, I did read a study a while ago about like lead pipes uh, and just like the the bad quality of pipes. You know, in um, like early twentieth century America, uh, was possibly responsible for violent crime and just getting like better. Uh, services and utilities has uh, led to like a drop in in crime. Also, um, there was an article about um, lead and gas too, like uh, just as a byproduct of uh, combustion engines. Yeah. Uh, switching to unleaded gas meant that like you just had less violent crime and, and, and all this stuff. Yeah, I was heard. I heard about that from somewhere. I can't remember where now too. But yeah, I was. There was a bunch of headlines last week about lithium in the drinking water. <laughs> Try that out. Um, of course, the seeming death of capitalism and avarice in the 24th century is cited usually as the prime cause of people not caring about their stuff. But they should theoretically still care about their data and even the stuff that they want to consume or create. Um, you know, the original series was mainly focused on political conflicts and civil rights issues. And because it and the utopia it depicted served as the inspiration for the, you know, forthcoming 40 years of Trek, I feel like the Trek franchise lacks a framework for discussing the kind of issues that we face daily in the digital age. It's easy for Data to say, yeah, we got rid of TV in the 21st century, but okay. Like, what do you guys do? You, don't tell me you only entertain yourself with listening to string quartets and doing public domain plays. You know, there, yeah. there has to be original media in the future. And that means there's a question of ownership. Yeah, I I often wonder a cup like how much of them not addressing it is because uh, of the modern politics involved, which is to say <laughs> that's sinister. But I, I love that that the people involved are never going to argue for a uh, non IP based world. Yeah, right, um, right. I have like been thinking about this since since you asked me to come on because in my mind, a utopia doesn't have the kind of IP restrictions that we have. Um, IP is a wild area of law. And in the United States, the problem with IP law is it fundamentally contradicts free expression. Yes. It's a monopoly right. Copyright is a monopoly right in a form of expression. It gives one person or group the right to make copies or use a certain material. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that just doesn't work with the first amendment. And so we have fair use and we have a number of other sort of legal principles that are supposed to square the circle of free expression and copyright. And so when I think about the Federation, I can't tell if they don't have it because the reason to have copyright is so that people who make things can make are incentivized to do it because then they can make money yeah and if there's no money or capitalism in the future then then it doesn't the stated purpose doesn't work I suppose. that purpose by the way is in the constitution it's to promote right. the useful yeah right? right right and and like we want i want picasso to get you know paid for right. uh for guernica and he wants to get paid but he also is trying to he wants to share this art with the world so it's like where's the where's the line drawn like in the future if you he's also dead well, like, he is. Yeah, yeah. he he is dead. Copyright law now is that it lasts the life of the author plus 70, 90, whatever years. Yeah. And like when you get into that kind of thing or you get into corporate ownership of something. Yeah. You've sort of moved way beyond the initial like this artist deserves to get paid for their work. Yeah. I, yeah. The guy that wrote the Dixon Hill books, like he he's not getting any money from that. He's dead. Right. <laughs> I actually wonder like. Do they not like they don't they might not have copyright because they don't have the the capitalism structure that necessitates copyright. Right. But they also might have a really restrictive copyright law because everything in Star Trek that we see is a couple hundred years old. Yeah. So they might not be using things that aren't in the public domain. So maybe it just things last for 400 years and that's why we haven't seen them. Yeah, they would just always be extant in whatever, you know, digital sphere that they have. That's their, just their record. Yeah. Um, it puts me, it, you know, it puts me in the mind of the Voyager episode, Author, Author, which is ostensibly about the rights of AI, but it's a sly commentary on IP rights as well. This is the one where the doctor writes his novel and it's, 
he wants to publish it, but he kind of changes his mind. But, you know, it's too late. The publishing house just goes and does publishes it without him. And when I saw the episode, I was a little surprised by the self-serving and almost devious actions of the publisher. That's not a lithium drinking publisher. <laughs> but you could argue that, you know, they knew that they, they knew they had something cool on their hands and they didn't ultimately feel that the doctor had human rights. But first of all, uh, did they read the book that they published? <laughs> and second of all, that just makes them like digital bigots instead of just dishonest businessmen. Yeah, and also just like, I mean, I think about this all the time. What is the publisher getting from it, again, in in a post-capitalist society other than, so like in theory, at that point, your reputation and your morality is all you have. Yeah, social capital, yeah. That's the only reason you'd be doing any of these things, really, is yeah. for a thirst for knowledge or or whatever. And, and so who knows? I think about like, there's also, you've been like in this time, TM 2020. Um, we've been hearing a lot about patents with regard to things like vaccines yeah. and and all of that. And I I fully believe that the Federation doesn't do that. That that medical advancements aren't patented and upsold and owned in this in that way. So I guess when you're creating a new tricorder or something, you're just donating your new design to the public good. Yeah, I mean you're you're probably you're making it probably with some support from a, from uh, uh, an institution and you're doing it for the good of the institution and for yourself as well. Yeah. The sort of idea of the, of the Star Trek future is that like unencumbered by the need to like do things for the sole purpose of having a roof over your head and food to eat and clothes to wear people would be pursuing what they're best at for the, and, and what's for the public good just out of a, desire to be doing something that fulfills them. Yeah. So. Also, it'd be good to be known as the Dr. So-and-so that invented like the new tricorder yeah. that saved all these lives, that kind of social capital. I think that capital of reputation would be important because presumably it would be, you know, even in the case of the, the publishing house, it'd be a punitive force against doing something like doing what they did to the doctor. If you went against an author's wishes or you made, you know, unagreed on edits or you took somebody's name off of something and put another on, you'd be criticized in the publishing community. You'd lose your consumer confidence. Yeah, that's, it actually takes me to a place that I don't love. So in, um, in Europe, uh, there is a, a concept called moral rights, hmm. um, where the artist has, even if they sell a piece of art, they have a moral right to it. Um, it's, unsurprisingly happens in France a lot. Uh, and it, it is things like even if you sold a painting to someone, you as the artist have can still di dictate how it is um, presented or how it is displayed. Um, or if you donate statuary to a park, they can't move it without your permission. Interesting. Um, and so I, I don't like moral rights. I tend to think of them as really restrictive because once something is part of culture, <laughs> you really shouldn't be controlling it because yeah. there's a number of studies that show that like restrictions on culture actually makes culture impoverished because all of culture builds on itself. Everything is sort of based on the culture that comes before it. And if you can't access it to move forward, your culture just sort of gets stagnant. Yeah. I, you're not a fan of the special editions then, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's fine you can you can do what you want but that like you don't get to dictate like you can't say that people's memories of things have changed yeah right well i, I feel like oh, lucas would, like, that's not how any of this works. i feel like lucas would edit all of our memories if he could but yeah, yeah. Uh, like you can do what you want to what you have but like it doesn't change what the culture has decided what you made means or what it does yeah yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about the doctor's situation, and I think that like the presumption of honesty and altruism is a lot of what the idea of Trek Utopia is based on, um, that people would want to be good, uh, combined with, you know, the lack of, of capitalism. And a publisher wouldn't just say, take your book and publish it, you know, without your permission. And I don't remember the details of the episode, but presumably the doctor would sign some kind of digital contract with the publishing company. Um, and some would say that, you know, no money, no need for contracts, but I think that's asking a lot. I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but I think they're going to need contracts still in the Federation. I think you still need contracts because you still need um, a system by which you agree to something. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's like a thing in contract law about how you have to exchange stuff, but you, that can be goods or services. Um, sure. But generally speaking, I think even in the future, you'd like, it's not a matter of good people being good or bad. It's, 
things are easier if you just have them written down between you so that you don't yeah. end up in situations yeah. where you're just arguing over what people are doing. Yeah. You have you have you have agreed to do a thing in a certain way and and then the arbitration's about that. Yeah. I think that's not that's not a capitalism thing. That's just a a good way. It's it's almost easier than like you can really hurt a friendship by just assuming things about each other. Whereas it's, it's almost, it's like more painful up front, but like roommate agreements are sort of the same deal, right? Like you would think your roommates, you know, your friends, you know what you're doing, but like people still do that. And I have friends who did it and it like saved them from having fights later on sure. because they'd sat down and worked all that stuff out. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. I was interviewing, um, Melinda Snodgrass, the writer of the episode, um, The Measure of a Man, uh, where Data's on trial. And she was say she was saying that uh, when she was writing the episode, Gene Roddenberry got a look at it and he's like, well, there wouldn't be any lawyers in the uh, 24th century, so I don't think we can do this story. And she's like, yeah, there would be. <laughs> there would be for reasons like this. Uh, people get divorced. Uh, you have like business contracts, you know, even dealing with outside societies. You've got yeah. treaties. You've got... Uh, you know, you might be dealing with a society that has an economy still. And so you need to like work out how you're going to you know, interact with them. And so you would obviously need uh, protections like that still. You'd still need lawyers because you'd still have judges. Right? Yeah, you'd have to. Um, any any system in which it, like you're trying to determine whether someone did something right or wrong. And like that's a very ideal like Jude Roddenberry might have said that. But that's that's a that's a. Like that's based on in the same way that's based on like a like a now idea of what lawyers do versus like what the like ideal of a lawyer is. Yeah. Like we have a view of what lawyers are because of the way the system and encourages lawyers to act a certain way. But the the fundamental like existence of a lawyer really is about arguing about people's rights and about even just hiring someone to argue for you rather than if you're not good at it. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. How can you defend yourself if you're not, if you're not good at it? I think it just, I think it ironically comes just from a more authoritative view of society, just coming from the generation that he does. Cause he's just assuming, Oh, some there's going to be a higher power, a better power. That's going to just intervene and, and just work everything out. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily the way that it's going to work even in a utopia. Yeah, but also I think just comes to the like, you know, Shakespeare first kill all lawyers, just like <laughs> yeah, this a, idea that like a literary viewpoint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're like they're like lawyers are fundamentally uh, not in line with like goodness, which isn't like I work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's all the lawyers I work with are doing all the right. time. Yeah, present um, company accepted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, are like are, are desperately working like insane hours to to try to prevent things from happening that we consider to be dystopic. Right. Yeah, Gene, what if what if every lawyer in the future also works with the ACLU and the EFF? Would that be okay? Yeah, I was also thinking cuz I uh, about like the federation um and whether or not the the software that everything runs on whether it's open source or not and I came to the conclusion that it has to be it has to be open source because that's the only thing that explains why it goes so wrong. Everything. So oh, why it goes so wrong? <laughs> that's... It's easy to break. Why it's so easy to hack. Why, <laughs> why people can show up to the flagship and just like, I have a computer I want to install and then it goes evil. Like, yeah, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> why that keeps happening. Why the holodecks keep murdering people. Like, I, it makes total sense to me that they have a completely open source technology that like encourages everyone to like improve it and work on it but that means everyone has a basic knowledge a billion of it programmers <laughs> yeah and everything is really esoteric and bizarre everyone's code is in 50 different languages yeah yeah <laughs> like i also wonder what it looked like when they brought like voyager back to earth and they were like taking it apart what did you put in here yeah <laughs> You know, we, we're not just talking about like a publishing rights here and intellectual property because Federation citizens can replicate complicated machines at the push of a button. You know, you wouldn't download a house, but in the 24th century, you totally can. Yeah. Um, and and that's actually excellent because as it is, one of the biggest problems we have right now is a lack of access and mm -hmm. an inability to make or repair your own devices. Increasingly, companies work really hard to make sure that you can't do anything to your own device or make your own devices. They want you to buy from them at a, a pretty large markup. Yeah. 
Um, Which is really and, limiting, yeah. And like you know, every every single Star Trek nerd when when three D printers started coming out were like clapping. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I think they even had in a in an episode of Picard they sort of disguised a, a real three D printer as as kind of a, a replicator device. Yeah. Presumably, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act doesn't exist in the 24th century because the doctor could have issued a takedown notice to his publisher. Yeah. Oh, man, the DMCA. (laughs) The DMCA is one of those things where, like, I assume it doesn't exist in the future because I assume uh, no future has the DMCA. (laughs) (laughs) No no utopian future, yeah. For a number of reasons. There are sort of, there are two major provisions to the DMCA. Mm -hmm. Um, One is 512. That's kind of the one everyone knows. If you've ever like tried to watch something and run into the this has been removed for copyright reasons, that's that's five twelve of the DMCA. Okay. Um a provision that allows anyone to take down anything just by sending a notice. Um yeah. it is for like real broken. Um and and somehow it's very broken and somehow still not as bad as the alternatives. Yeah. Um and then there's actually a section called uh, 1201. Section 1201 is the what it makes breaking any sort of digital or physical lock on a on copyrighted material illegal, even if you are doing it for a reason that you have the right to. Right. So like that's why you can't repair your car now is because they all have computers in them, and breaking into the computer would break the DRM. Uh, and then, then you violated the DMCA, even though like you have the right to fix your car. <laughs> right. This is infamously the tractor thing, right? The tractor thing, yeah. This is uh, rights holders uh, disenfranchising consumers by, you know, using this to enforce a planned obsolescence of their products. Yeah. Um, none of that has to do with copyright. Like that's not copyright protection. Sure. Um, right. That's just that's just things that happen to have copyrighted materials on them being used to prevent you from from fixing your phone or fixing your own computer or your car or your tractor and it's like it's just an absurd result that i would say the uh, the replicator probably makes obsolete as well um in the future yeah, but it's probably. it's right for now like a complete nightmare um and and for a number of reasons probably unconstitutional but hmm. uh it's so like that I, I assume that the future, at least my future, doesn't have the DMCA in it. Um, just for my own sanity, I have to presume yeah, right. that, that it doesn't because, again, all of the like one of the factors for fair use is that you haven't affected the market for the original work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't I don't know what the market looks like in in the Star Trek future. Yeah, I well, I don't know. I mean, is is there even one? You know, at least as the Federation is concerned. And you were talking about, you know, videos disappearing before. You know, ownership is becoming a thing of the past in our century. And many of us listen to music on streaming services for a fee. Uh, and you know, many of the songs or albums or shows, films that people watch are hosted digi- digitally, and nobody owns a physical copy of it. So if Netflix decided to pack it all in tomorrow, a lot of us would have nothing to watch. Yeah, um, I talk like. Security experts and IP experts are both Luddites. Hmm. Um, I always say this. I have my friends that I work with who are security experts. Like one of them didn't have a smartphone until this year. Um, Our director of cybersecurity often says like about various things like that will never be in my home. I will never have one of those in my home. (laughs) I will never have anything with a microphone in it in my home. Yeah. Uh, and people who know a lot about copyright, all of us own physical copies of everything um, because we know what happens with digital copies and you don't own digital copies. You've licensed them. Right, right. Uh, even a thing you paid for that you bought, you hit like buy now on Amazon. If it's a digital copy, technically you haven't bought it. You've only licensed it. So we can vanish even though you paid for it. Yeah. Uh, that's also a, a measure of control because then the old measure of control, right, was they'd come up with new technology and sell you a new format. And at least in that regard, like they were coming up with new technology and coming up with a new format and selling it to you as an improvement. Right. <laughs> this is better quality or this has special features. And now it's just we've decided yeah. that you don't have access to this anymore and you're just going to have to buy another copy somewhere. Yeah, we mentioned the uh, special editions before, like good luck getting the original versions of Star Wars. Good luck getting any of Star Wars if Disney Plus goes down like yeah. or Netflix. Yeah. It is um, a weird thing where simultaneously 
easier to archive things than ever before, but harder to hold on to them. Yeah, that's interesting. And they must have reconciled that, you know, to themselves, uh, Federation citizens, because they're they're cool with not being obsessed with possessions and they seem to have total media access at all times. Like tell Alexa to play a tune or they can call up uh, like a a rural Indiana town newspaper from the 20th century. You know, when they're in the Delta quadrant like that, they have access to something like that. And we've joked in the past on this show about how, even though they have world war three in their history, the Spotify servers must've been in hardened bunkers because they have all the music and media that they need in the future. Nothing, nothing has been lost, but if all that went away uh, or was started to be restricted, like it is in our era, maybe people in the future would start clinging to their old albums more. Or yeah, I just wonder how if Wikipedia and the internet archive just, just made it through every single turmoil (laughs) in the, in the future. Yeah. Uh, Cause those are, those are sort of two groups that are doing a lot of work to sort of preserve as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is, it's an interesting, like as, as someone who believes in free culture and, and free access to, to knowledge, like the ability to call that stuff up and is the future that I work towards and, and why, like at EFF, we joke all the time about, about uh, uh, fighting dystopia and promoting utopia. That's sort of our like goal. Um, when it comes to technology, because, you know, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone. There were a number of Star Trek nerds at EFF. Uh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, my, my office with its giant, with its giant poster of mirror Picard is not super unusual. <laughs> um, but, and so like the, the future we're working towards is one where something like the internet, which has access to everything, which enables communication is a force for good rather than than a place where where companies or governments can sort of try to control a flow of information. Yeah. You mentioned um, fair use in connection with the DMCA before. And of course, fair use is the bane of both corporate rights holders and fan artists on the internet. A lot of fans are very creative. They love Star Trek. They go about making new creations, featuring the characters and settings that they love from Star Trek. And often rights holders like CBS turn a blind eye to it, like you mentioned, if there's no, you know, there's no uh, detraction from their profits. But sometimes they get directly involved and they stop creators from using Trek content. Um, fan films, if people remember, took a big hit a couple years ago uh, before the return of new Star Trek to the digital space. And Paramount was cracking down hard on the use of uh, their trademarked IPs in fan films and fan movies. Yeah, um, I'd say that the fan movies are harder. Um, I mean, I I generally come... In, I mean, I'm not an actual... I have a law degree, but I, I do not license to practice law. Uh, I tend to come down on the assumption that things are fair use. I, I believe in it and believe that it is it is better and we are, are stronger as a culture Sure. when there is fair use. Um, and it's, it's pretty – transformative works are transformative. That is – there are sort of four – there are four factors. Um, the two that you really need to know are how transformative – the work is and whether it has an effect on the market. And the first one has become more important than the second. It's also the fourth, but ignore how, how <laughs> yeah, bizarre the numbering is. There are factors and there is an order, but those two are sort of the ones that have been largely considered to be the most important. Yeah. And it used to be how much money you made was the most important factor and whether you were taking money away from the original rights holder. It has started to become more important that you be transformative. And I think most things you can sort of argue are transformative. Your version of Star Trek that has, that is exploring a different topic or a topic that Star Trek has never done or is reinterpreting Star Trek through a lens, your modern lens that they haven't is transformative um, and is sort of the basis of all things like I joke about this all the time the Aeneid is fan fiction the Aeneid is Homer fan fiction <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it is it's it's a it's Rome it's uh, Rome wanting to talk about how they're connected to Greece and how and how cool they are right the the divine comedy Dante Alighieri and the Inferno uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso is his fan fiction it is a Mary Sue fan fiction yeah <laughs> it's fanfic in which he walks through the afterlife and everyone, all his heroes tell him how awesome he is and everyone he hates is in hell. Like yeah. it is, 
So all of those, like, art, like, our culture is based on building upon the stuff that has come before it and transforming it. Like, nothing Shakespeare did was new. He was taking a lot of tales and reimagining them. Like, sure, sure. All of that. And that is, that is sort of what we're doing. And it's only really recently that we've decided not just that artists deserve to be credited or artists deserve to get money, but that, like, corporations can own a thing. Yeah, yeah. You get to dictate how it's seen and used. And I think that's really not utopia. Yeah. This is something that I run up against all the time as a as a content creator myself who is dealing with uh, somebody else's uh, work. I, I created a number of T-shirt designs that were Star Trek related and I assumed sufficiently transformative to fall under fair use. But someone from CBS Interactive got a look at my store and, you know, that was the end of that. And... You know, Tumblr art is one thing, but things like my T-shirts are produced by a third party, in this case, a T-shirt company. So as a facilitating entity, you know, from a corporate perspective, they don't need any trouble with a copyright suit. So they just take things down, no question to ask. And the irony is that like 99% of their offerings are all derivative works based on pop culture properties. So it's a beg forgiveness rather than ask permission situation. It is. I mean, for those, for those intermediaries, um, if they are like a website or whatever, um, in order to not get sued by Hollywood under the DMCA, if they get a notice, they have to take stuff down. Yeah. Um, and you have, you have the right under the DMCA to, to counter notice, but almost no one does. Yeah. Um, for the obvious reason that like, even if you are fairly certain that what you've done is correct, you, an individual with a tiny store is not going to have the money or resources to go up against CBS. Yeah. Like, yeah, even even if you have that right, the chances of you exercising it are are, are slim. Yeah, and that's pretty much how it went. And the awesome part two of my story, though, is that a few weeks after my stuff got taken down, I got an email from the T-shirt company saying that they were partnering with CBS Interactive and certain creations approved by CBS would be accepted and sellable on the site. So one of my designs was approved. And now when you go to the page for that uh, shirt, if you scroll down, it says copyright 2020 CBS Interactive. So they put me to work for them. Yeah, I have I have a whole I have a whole theory about <laughs> um, about corporations getting savvier about fandom um, and about about licensing just the the amounts of transformative works from from fans that like fit within their paradigm. Yeah. Um, which makes it look like they're more accepting, but anything that's truly challenging would never get accepted that way. Yeah. Anything that would is truly radical, say. Um, yeah. And that is in large part, like a lot of transformative work is it's radical. It tends to be um, the voice of people who didn't see themselves, like going back to sort of how I ended up a fan of Star Trek. A lot of transformative work is people who didn't, who don't see themselves in this stuff, putting themselves there. Yeah. Putting someone queer or putting someone black or um, a woman or any, or non-binary or any sort of version of themselves into something they didn't see themselves in. Yeah. And that's, and that's what makes it so good and so, and radical and transformative. And that's the kind of stuff that isn't going to get approval. Um, because it's just a little too forward thinking, which is <laughs> yeah. when it comes to Star Trek, really depressing. Because that's so depressing. That's like, like I, I tend to, I, I say this all the time. I, I tend to accept Disney and Star Wars being a little bit more insane. Um, D Disney is Disney, and Disney has a very specific corporate view of itself, and it's going to police it pretty strongly. Um, and then it bought Star Wars, and s sort of same deal. Yeah. Um, but. Star Trek, I, I hold to a higher standard <laughs> because <laughs> of it is at least if you're going to hold yourself out as as, you know, a utopia and like as something that is about thinking and being like on the cutting edge of this stuff, then yeah. then I, I then I'm going to if you ask me to expect more of you, I'm going to expect more of you. Yeah, it's uh, it's dissonant uh, narratively, and it's also it's stifling creatively because uh, there's a new Star Trek show you know called Lower Decks, which is like a comedy show. I was reading an interview with the creator of the show, and he was talking about how their first rule of writing jokes for Star Trek is that they don't punch down on Star Trek, 
And I am completely mystified as to how you can punch down on Star Trek as a gigantic, you know, well-loved franchise that's lasted for over 50 years. And their job, you know, is satire, right? They should be making fun of the goofy aspects of Star Trek. I mean, that's, I love the property and that's what I want to see. But I, I imagine that, you know, his, his corporate overlord, you know, got to him and said, okay, you guys can have fun, but like, you know, don't, don't make fun of the property. Don't make fun of Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, punching down and punching up is, is the like fundamental rule of comedy. Yeah, right. What makes something bullying versus what makes something funny. Yeah. And like in this point, punching up includes making fun of CBS. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Or making fun of Star Trek, which is 50 something years old. Yeah. Like it's not a scrappy nothing anymore. Yeah. (laughs) They go full Letterman and just make fun of CBS. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) Like that is, that is what like, yeah. Yeah. That's that's what punching up would be rather than punching down. Punching down would be like you couldn't even do in Star Trek because it would require you to write incredibly racist character yeah but it, yeah but it would be like you know get a life it would be like the the shatner yeah. snl sketch which i mean is done i think in good fun and has gone to if that was his attempt to like distance himself from his trek uh his uh character of kirk uh you know he wrote a book later called get a life like he just em- yeah. embraced that whole thing so yeah you can't it's impossible to punch down on star trek um <laughs> back to back to digital rights uh, on the issue yeah. of censorship. Uh, you're a regular contributor to EFF's blog on digital rights issues, and you co-authored a post last year about President Trump tweeting a Nickelback meme that became a prime example of the use of the DMCA takedown as a t- uh, tool of political censorship. And it's a sort yeah. of twisted tale. Yeah, it, it's one of those ones where like. This happens a fair bit, actually, in the like copyright world, Who where like something for? will happen and we'll be like, listen. I don't like some people, but that doesn't actually change how rights work. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Nickelback or the uh, like album owners trying to take down this video, which was very stupid, um, which was a photo of like Joe Biden meeting someone from the Ukraine. um, And, and with the song, look at this photograph. (laughs) There's like a lot going on, but um, to take it down because of the use of that clip of the song is not how anything works. The song itself is a meme now. Um, in fact, the the story happening led to me in the office with a bunch of my coworkers showing them my favorite look at this photograph meme. <laughs> my favorite is look at this graph where someone has edited the song to just be the graph part over the entire thing. And then it's a graph. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and so like that, that's, that's how our culture has evolved as we speak in references. And that's always sort of been true. Like if you think of older sayings, they come from the same thing. Um, We just now do it visually as well as verbally. Um, Or we use it with the clip of the song rather than just saying it ourselves. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's, that's just, that's how we speak and it's transformative. It's clearly not what Nickelback meant. (laughs) No. (laughs) And, and you don't, no one seeing it would uh, assume that it is, it has, it's, it's taken on its own cultural meaning. And, and so people using copyright to, to censor things is not unusual and not what it's for. It's not. And the, the problem tends to be copyright. You're not required to police anything. You can, you can pick and choose. And so generally speaking, you can sort of tell when people have picked and choose. Yeah. Uh, and that's that. like, I don't love it. It's in the same way that when the president tweeted his like winter is coming weird poster yeah. and HBO got involved. I was like, that's still, that is both stupid and he is still allowed to do that. Yeah. It's another reason Nickelback's the worst. They violated president Trump's first amendment rights. Like, how do you do that? I don't want to, ha- like, I always say like, I, was like, I don't want to like, I don't want to be to defend this, but I, I feel like it's important to point out that like everyone has these rights and yeah. just because you like or don't like doesn't doesn't mean and generally speaking, by the time someone like him is getting hit, there's a number of people in much more precarious situations who have been hit right, way harder and already got problems. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the, if like the Star Trek version would be Galdicott holding a photo of Cisco and like <laughs> Senator Vrenak or something like that. Somebody conspiring against him singing a Vic LaFontaine song (laughs) there you go Uh, let's talk about the digital infrastructure of the future 
That should take up an hour or so. Uh, <laughs> the, the Federation would presumably have full control of the communication services that people use to share information. And we never, as far as I can tell, see the Federation censor or deactivate those services, but they presumably have that ability. And I believe when Admiral Layton stages his coup in DS9, you know, Cisco finds out that he sent a team to disrupt power and communication on earth to facilitate their takeover. So it can be done at least on a small scale. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I keep, I, I keep thinking that there must be a giant public net service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, so Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. Thinking of big square. Okay. Chattanooga, Tennessee built its own um, internet service provider because none of the big internet service providers would would build for them because it wasn't it wouldn't make them a ton of money and it would just be you know giving internet to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Chattanooga built its own ISP. It is the most beloved ISP in the country. Everyone else hates their ISP except in Chattanooga. It's also one of the fastest because they continually reinvest and everyone in Chattanooga has access to some of the fastest internet speeds in the country Yeah. at, at a very competitive price because, again, it is municipally owned. Um, and so I sort of assume there is some sort of version of that in the future where everyone has access. But at the same time, I also assume that there are not private, like not companies, but that if you wanted to build a, a transformer and then someone else wanted to build a receiver, that that wouldn't be discouraged in in the future, uh-huh. but that there wouldn't be total control. Yeah, because that seems to run counter to to any sort of future in which you can build what you want or you can talk to what, who you want. Yeah. Uh, and also, even even with the Federation facilitating anything wherever in space, I would presume that ship-to-ship communication isn't routed through the Federation. I think that they've got, like, relays and things like that, but yeah. For, like, long distance, yeah. Sure. But, like, if you and, like, when they appear, when the Klingons appear on the view screen right in front of you, I assume that's just beamed ship-to-ship rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. relayed yeah. somewhere and then bounced back to you. Right. Um, so there would have to be like ways of communicating directly that don't go through, that don't go through others. Um, and again, going sort of back to that like open source deal, like I, I also tend to think that a, a, a future that e- like even if you want this stuff to work on that scale, you would end up with something that anyone can build off. That's the only way to move forward in that scheme. Yeah, you'd have to. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, Star Trek is a frontier setting. Because the great distances involved between people and settlements mean that long-range communication, you know, is is incredibly important. It's like telegraphs or the Pony Express, you know. But we don't we don't see many post letters in Trek, so digital communication that you know that's it. Like we don't we also don't see like you know we don't see how the Federation government works all that much. But I no, I, and I want that show. <laughs> yeah, I I do too. Yeah, um, it, so that means that like you know I'm hoping I hope that there are special protections surrounding subspace communications. So that the service is out of control of whatever Federation president or ruling body happens to be in power. You know, we've seen in the real world how other countries have undemocratic control over their Internet and they can shut it down at will. And hopefully the Fed can't do that. Um, The Cardassians definitely have a big off switch for the Cardassian Internet that Dukat can hit. And the Ferengi, I bet their Internet is probably rock solid because the markets and commerce have to continue. Oh, I bet bet the Ferengi just have AT&T. (laughs) <laughs> just just AT&T again okay just do that all over again <laughs> it's just it, it's one it's like one giant company that provides a service that works 50% of the time yeah. at an extremely extortionate rate you get what you get yeah and it's an extortionate <laughs> rate for sure <laughs> um what people use the internet for in the Federation other than communication, I don't know. Uh, we don't ever see social media. It's because it didn't exist when they were writing these shows. But uh, they do have Twitter. Hopefully they have like something fun to do on the internet. And like user rights on social media is a hot button topic in the real world. You know, we've, we're dragging the real life data, Mark Zuckerberg, up to Capitol Hill <laughs> to grill him about stuff. And, you know, President Trump is literally banning Chinese social media companies. So, you know, I wonder what consumer confidence would be like in relation to data security and, you know, the possible use and implementation of that data by third parties. Yeah, I – so if it's the Federation, then I think there's a whole, like, 
in my work, this is a, a pretty consistent problem is the difference between abuse by a government who has very, who have like a significant amount of power over your life and the abuse by like a private entity, which is usually in our world, a company. Yeah. Um, if it's a social media that like run that is hosted and run by the government, it actually would be more protective of speech and mm. therefore possibly worse. Hmm. If that makes sense. Okay. Because um, a government couldn't really like a government like the Federation. If we're ta- we were talking about this earlier, right? If you're everything's based on your social capital, if you don't mm. have monetary capital, right? And so censoring would be incredibly dangerous because you could alienate people based on things you don't realize that they might think you were doing. Okay. Right. Okay. Outside of anything that's like a truth, what's called a true threat or, or like doxing. Right. Yeah. Um, so like a government run thing would probably be pretty permissive, whereas privately run things. Um, and that might actually itself be better if community, if, if social networks were, in the future, small and based on like just you and your friends set one up for yourselves. And you have like in that sort of a contract thing we were talking about earlier, you made your own rules, right? You agreed. This is where we talk about these things and this is what we will and will not tolerate and we'll enforce it. That's, that's like normal boundary setting and what like the world should look like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so there would probably be like some version of like the Federation wide Twitter where people just scream into the void constantly. <laughs> yeah. And I use Twitter like too much. Um <laughs> as a as a former journalist, I'm just on it way too much. Um I'm extremely online. Um but like I would assume that like there's that one where everyone's on it constantly screaming nightmare scenarios or like pictures of their lunch. And then there are like smaller ones that are like individually set up for like back or like remember back in the old days where you'd have like a use next group use that group where like yeah, yeah. it's like based on something it's based on a shared interest or a shared culture or a shared history or family or friendship or school um and so that there's some reason for it ex- to exist rather and like it's policed for that for that rather than the social networks we have now which st- like facebook started just for schools right and and right, now yeah. it's just just, the only business model it has is everyone, and that's why yeah. it's the screaming. It's just for ruining elections now, yeah. Yeah. So, like, they only have one model, and it's growth. It's like Sporg-like. Yeah. You, you will well, join Facebook. Welcome to capitalism, yeah. 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 And so, like, a social media of the future would probably be, a, a, like, small groups that, like, exist, grow naturally rather than grow unnaturally, which is sort of what we have now. Yeah. And like the Federation one where everyone just puts everything they want and nothing happens because the government can't actually stop. Sure. And it's just saying something. free fire zone. Uh, yeah. It's to, like you mentioned data privacy. Data privacy is really, data privacy is really important, but it's also like hard to square with like other freedoms, right? Yeah. If the Federation is open source, how does it protect the data of, the people who work in Starfleet yeah, or, or what, or what, or whatever. And, you know, maybe we know that they do keep things secret because otherwise there'd be no reason for there to be so many spies. Sure. There's a military. Um, Yeah. Right. There's a military and, and the like Romulans and, and everyone else like are always trying to get in a spy in to find things out. Yeah. So there are things that are kept secret yeah the entire reason section 31 exists there i always think about the fact that like you know they they live in a world where a handheld device can know everything about you and i don't mean a cell phone you know they've got like tricorders and stuff so when you have the level of information gathering that they have like their sensors you can detect and record nearly every aspect of a physical being so the federation better have a biometric bill of rights as well yeah uh yeah if you can, we like, again, in these troubled times, because um, we, we talk about that now, about health data, about what these tracking apps for coronavirus look like, yeah. what they mm-hmm. store. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you'd have a biometric bill of rights. I think you'd probably, anything that the Federation scans, you can't, truly anonymous data is really difficult, but they'd probably have some sort of anonymization scheme. Um 
there's some interesting work, the census, the people who are working on securing the census are doing some really interesting work on how to anonymize and generalize hmm. data, but you have to have a pretty large sample size to yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, and, and they probably have a, like a deletion provision where all of the data they collect vanishes after a certain amount of time on individuals. Mm hmm. Um, so that it, it maybe serves a purpose in the, in the short term, but isn't accessible by someone else who's using it for a, a, a non-authorized purpose. That's interesting. They'd, they'd have to have like a, like a super HIPAA law to keep your, your medical information safe. Um, yeah. I mean, um, Illinois, and this is why you keep hearing about these companies getting sued in Illinois. Illinois has a biometric, um, protection law. It's like the only one in the country. Hmm. Um, that's why Clearview, which is that um, AI company that's been scraping everyone's photos off the Internet, um, and there was a New York Times story about it, is being sued, I believe, in Illinois, is because Illinois doesn't allow you to take people's data that way. Hmm, okay. um, and then you have the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in the UK, which uh, – in the UK, sorry, the EU. Right. <laughs> in the EU, which – um, allows anyone in the EU to get a copy of, to, to make everyone turn over the data they have on you and you can request deletion, I believe. Okay. Um, hmm. and so there's a question about whether you need, whether the affirmative right to request deletion is truly good or not. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things about what's opt in or opt out. I would assume in the Federation, we don't tend to see things are opt in. Like they just scan you. They don't <laughs> yeah, just I ask. know. Unless like every time you you get in a ship, you sign like a bunch of documents. Well, there's you know there's military considerations because like we, like we were saying like when you join Starfleet, I assume that you are signing a portion right. of your rights away because your biometric data will be necessary in the exercise of your duties. But Keiko yeah. never made that deal. There's an right? episode of DS9 where she's possessed by a pa wraith, and so Miles is crawling through a Jeffrey's tube and he's trying to figure out how to disable her, and he has this conversation with the computer where he's like, "Okay, scan her." And you know, the computer scans her without her permission, and he's and then he's trying to figure out how much anesthesine gas they can give her so that that it won't like it'll knock her out but not kill her. And it's like this yeah. is this is a lot of uh, information being collected here without anybody's knowledge. Yeah, like everyone in Starfleet, I assume, has signed a bunch of stuff. Do what over, you want to me. Like, yeah, but like the kids on the Enterprise, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or or anytime they go down to another planet. And it's not a Federation planet, but it's also not a a non-warp uh, society. So they're not trying to hide themselves and they're just scanning. Like Yeah, just scanning that, stuff. That, that doesn't seem and especially like in the like like in like say like the hoarder or whatever, when they're scanning things they think are rocks but are actually people. <laughs> yeah, right. You definitely didn't get consent for that. Yeah, they just didn't think of it. But of course all we have is what we see on screen. So we can either just assume, well, they must have something, or we can take it at face value. Like the the, the problem of, we also we often see holodeck users recreating their acquaintances in the holodeck, and Quark even tried to recreate Kira for a program he plans to sell. And I think mostly this is just seen as distasteful and not specifically illegal. So I think we have to just assume that Federation citizens are like, ah, don't do that. Nobody nobody does that. I mean, in in our world, we have a we have a thing called publicity rights where you well while someone is alive once mm. they die they die but uh, while someone is alive you can't really use their image without consent because it implies that they've approved your thing they have ownership and of their image maybe just ownership of their Im it's not really ownership because that that would imply it's more of a like using someone's image without their consent implies to other people that they have oh. approved this use. oh that's twisted okay huh and so you can't use someone's image without their consent because especially when it's like a famous person or anything, um, you have, a, you are selling to other people, this person's image on your product. Sure. Um, and you're sort of implying that they approve of it. And so you can't really do that because you can't, it's, it's a consent based thing rather than a property based thing. Sure. So if, a, uh, so if a hoarder rolls over a camera and takes a picture of itself, it owns that picture. Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't own that picture. It's that you can't use that picture to sell a bag of rice. Okay, okay. 
Uh, the Hoarder Rice, my favorite brand. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did that because the original story was about a bag of flour. The original case where it comes out is a is a, a picture of two girls on a bag of flour. Oh, okay, okay, interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like there's there's and I like I tend to think of that as not a problem because it's not really about ownership. It's about like your protection of your own image, which again, we've been sort of talking about this in the future. Like if there isn't money, that's kind of what you got. Yeah. That's your, your social capital. I, I tend to think of it as like a positive or utopian version of that Bryce Dallas Howard episode of black mirror where everybody's, you know, giving each other five stars. And of course, when she gets, you know, three and a half stars, she can't like take a plane ride. I wouldn't want that to happen in the Federation, but everybody's like, everybody be good because we're just going to look at you, you know, sideways if you if you're not if you're not doing good things yeah there's there is some midpoint between american individualism and i'll say uh japanese because that's where my mom's family is from sort of like collectivism yes there's there's a there's got to be a middle ground between like everyone for themselves and only for other people yeah um, that I assume is sort of the equilibrium that the the Federation sort of strives for. Whether they get it all the time is is a question for another day. Yeah. I have a number of friends who have some extremely hot takes <laughs> about about how the Borg and the Federation are the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's sort of what I assume assume their hope they're striving for. Yeah. Hopefully, we can decode some of that and and apply it to to our own world. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today uh, to talk about Star Trek and digital rights and a lot of other things. Let people know where they can find you online. So I am K underscore Trendacosta on Twitter. Um, And if you have digital rights issues, you can email me at Catherine at EFF.org. It's K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E at EFF.org. Hence the the spelling thing we talked about earlier. Right. and yeah, we EFF tries very hard to, if people need help, at least direct them in, in a helpful direction rather than just, just leave things hanging. Sure. So get in touch, people, if you've got digital rights issues. And thanks again for talking with me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, no, this was this is delightful. I, I love talking about Star Trek. <laughs> anyone who's ever talked with me or worked with me will, will tell you. <laughs> Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself. <laughs>